Uh, if you have your Bible, you can open, uh, just turn a couple of pages as you open that thing to Genesis chapter 1. We're not going to go real, real far into the pages this morning. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 1, and uh, we're going to continue in our Advent series, which we started last week. The, uh, the, the, I, I guess the theme of Advent is to, uh, to look at the coming of, of Christ, always. It's, it's to see that first coming of Jesus Christ as we anticipate His second coming, and uh, we'll get a great opportunity to do that this morning as we finish out the day today with the Lord's Supper here in a little bit. Uh, but, but again, I want to take us back into uh, who is God. Last week we began by just looking at the triune uh, God, that, that He is triune. Uh, we looked at some of the things that that meant. One of the things that we said, or kind of the overarching thing we said, is that He is self-existent, all-sufficient, and triune, and we looked at what those things mean, and so that's going to bring, it's going to shed some light on the significance of the incarnation that, that Jesus Christ has come. It's going to help us to understand that a bit more fully uh, this week. Though I want to focus on the overflowing love of God, the overflowing love of God. Next week we're going to look at how He's a God unlike all others, but this week we're going to look at the overflowing love of God, which will actually parallel really well to. Uh, this morning's Sunday school lessons. Uh, so we're just going to kind of add to some of the things we that were said in it, uh, which was not planned, but worked out really nicely. So let's see. Let me say a couple more things and I'll pray for us before we get rolling. Um, as we're thinking about God, we want to know who is He? Who is God? As we ask those questions, we want to know what is this God like? If he's the creator, why does he create? Why is he interested in redemption at all? Is this Christian God like other gods? Are Allah and Buddha and various other gods throughout time and history, are they all the same as the Christian God, just with different names? Or is our God different? And if so, what separates him from them? They're all really good questions, and some of them will get answered more as we go through the series, but the Bible reveals a God who is radically different than other gods. He's unlike all other gods. Our God is eternally triune. He's the creator of everyone and everything. And the thing that I want you to see today, if you're taking notes, you can write this down at the top, is that the overflowing love of God is the beginning of creation. It's, it's what is the foundation of creation, is the overflowing love of God. And let me pray for us before we dive into this today. Heavenly Father, we, we, we praise you, and we're in awe of you, and it's, it's wonderful that we've sung songs this morning that glorify your name. Because as we approach the study of you, Father, we need our hearts to be in the right place. Lord, help us to... Uh, be humble today as we approach you. Help us to revere your name. Father, we come to you not wanting to accuse you of anything, not wanting to assume anything about you, but we come to you wanting to discover exactly who you are. And so, Lord, these things are above me. Um, my words will fail. My thoughts will be incomplete. Um, 
God, you transcend all things. And yet, Father, what we see in the Advent is that you come to us. You are near to us. You are unlike us, and yet you are near to us. And so, Father, we worship you today. We honor you today. And we approach your word today wanting to learn from you about you. Lord, would you help us to do that today? Would you be near to us? Would you illuminate the Scriptures today by your Holy Spirit? Help our hearts to love you. Help our desires be for you. Help us, Father, to delight in you today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Uh, So I want to talk to you today about how God's love is not something that happened at creation, but creation is the overflow of God's love. In Genesis 1.1, what we read about God is that in the beginning, God. (laughs) In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and that teaches us something immediately in those first four words of Scripture about God, and that is that in the beginning, God. It means that God existed before the beginning, before the beginning of the universe, before the beginning of all things, before the creation of all things, God was. He existed before those things. And so one of the questions that comes to mind for us, I think, at times is, well, what was God doing? Maybe you've never thought of that question before, but one question that comes, at, comes to the forefront when you read that God was in the beginning is, what, what is He up to? What is the Godhead doing in those moments? Well, the eternally triune God, which we'll see more about even today than what we saw last week, because you you can't talk about God without talking about the Trinity. This eternally triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they were enjoying one another. They were in fellowship with one another. They were loving one another. There was fellowship within the Godhead. They, they knew one another. They're communing with one another. That The Father was loving the Son through the Holy Spirit, just as He does today. The Son was loving the Father in return through the Holy Spirit, just as He does now. In John 17, Jesus Christ prays this to the Father. In, chapter, in, in verse 5 of John 17, He says, And now, Father, glorify Me in Your presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Christ is now saying something about His deity, that He existed with the Father before the world existed. In the beginning was God. In verse 24, Jesus goes on in His prayer there, in the high priestly prayer of John 17. He says, Father, I desire that they also, talking about His disciples and those who would come after them, you and I, I desire that they also, those whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So Christ had the glory of the Father before the foundation of the world, and he had the love of the Father before the foundation of the world. There was communion within the Godhead. And so Jesus reveals the fatherly love of God. He shows us that God the Father is a Father because He loves. Jesus' baptism captures 
the nature of this. So we, we see the triune God in action, and it helps us to understand what their relationship is like before the foundation of the world. In Luke 3, 21 through 22, we have uh, Luke's written account of the baptism of Christ. He says, now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. You are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. So we might think of God as first and foremost a a creator or ruler, but we would be we would be wrong to do that. We might we we might think of him as something else that that he's just God and and whatever that means that he's Lord. But but first and foremost, what we learn is that he's a father. And he's a father who loves his son, and he pours out the spirit of love on the son. He pours out the spirit of life on the son from eternity past to eternity future. This will be the way it is. There's a wonderful little book, Delighting in the Trinity, that talks about these things. And I go back to it over and again as I'm talking with you guys because it's, it's such a great read. But Michael Reeves writes this. He says, since God is before all things a father, and not primarily creator or ruler, all his ways are beautifully fatherly. It's not that this God does, you know, quote-unquote, does being a father as like a day job, Reeves says, only to kick back in the evenings as plain old God. (laughs) It's not that he has a nice blob of fatherly icing on top. He is Father. What Reeves is saying is that through and through, He's a Father. All the way down to the core. Reeves continues, thus all that He does, He does as Father. That is who He is. He creates as Father and He rules as Father. And that means the way He rules over creation is most unlike the way any other God would rule over creation. He's a father. And and what we see with God is that when he rules his creation, he does it as a kind, a loving, a benevolent father. And and he does it so that we'll be moved in delight of him, that we'll be moved deep within in delight of his providential plans in our life, that whatever he gives to us, we delight in the father because we know that what the Father orders is good. It's for our good. It's for His glory. So the Father is called a Father because He is a Father. And what does a Father do? Well, a Father is someone who gives life. A Father produces children. And before the foundation of the world, God was eternally a Father. This is core to understanding God. That that means that He is inherently, as a Father, outgoing. He he is life-giving. We can honestly say that He is a life-giving God. He he didn't give life for the first time when He decided to create. From eternity, He has been life-giving. 
1 John 4 reveals this kind of God for us. In verse 7, the Apostle John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now, we, we, we can say that God is all sorts of other attributes, and we would be right. We, we listed some of these on uh, the whiteboard last week, that God is holy, that God is perfect, God is just, God is righteous. There's no lack of anything in God. God has all things, right? He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's all-present. All of these things would be part of the attributes of God. It, but none of these attributes exist apart from one another. You, you are, he, he is fully loving, and He's all-powerful. His, his all-power is love. He, he will not be all-powerful apart from love. He will not be loving apart from His power. Does that make sense? They're all inter, they're intertwined. They interlink. They're connected to one another. All of His attributes. We, we don't separate, separate them. We don't segregate them out. We don't list some here like God is loving, but He's also angry. Well, well anger comes from the love of God. It comes from His righteousness. That there is justice that must be Rendered. There is judgments that must be given, and that's a part of the love of God. And so the Apostle John is saying that God is so profoundly loving that you simply cannot know God without also becoming loving. The Bible here is saying that there is no such thing as a, as a Christian, a proclaimed, self-proclaimed Christian who is not loving. That doesn't mean that he's not working on his love and the way that he loves others, even the way that he loves God. It just means that there will be evidence of God's love in his life if God is truly alive in him. Amen? We must be loving. And so God is loving. John goes on to explain there in, in chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, how we know that God is loving. He says this in verse 9, just uh, two verses later. He says, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. So the love of God is made manifest through the giving of the Son of God. That's one of the clearest pictures we have of the love of God. Now, other clear pictures of the love of God are creation. The, the fact that God creates, the fact that God gives to us a world to live in, that He gives us life and breath, and that He withholds uh, evil from us. And, and that He gives good to us. But all of these things are evidences. Many of these are just common graces. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, you're experiencing the love of God. But as a believer, you come to experience the love of God through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And that love takes on new life. It goes down much deeper than just observing creation, just looking into the world that you live. You now become loving because you are transformed. You are made new. You're a new creation, Scripture says. So before anything else, this Father who is love is the Father who sends His Son. And to be the Father means to love, to give out life. Before anything else, this God for all eternity was loving. He was giving life. He was giving life to His Son. He was delighting in His Son. And so above all else, God is love. As Michael Reeves says, he, he could not not love. It's impossible for God to not love. 
because he has a son, because he is triune, because he has known relationship from the beginning of, of all time. Well, before that even. Time is for us. He's outside of that. If he did not love, he would not be a father. Adding some things here about the Spirit, particularly that he is a his purpose in the Godhead. That the way the Father makes his love known is through his Spirit. Romans 5 5 says that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So this is what I meant a moment ago when I was talking about there's a, a deeper understanding of the love of God because the Holy Spirit has made God's love known to you as God has poured the Holy Spirit into us. It's through this giving. It's through giving His Son and the Spirit that the the Father declares His love for the Son. Delighting in the Trinity, again, Reeves writes, he says, it is all deeply personal. That the Spirit stirs up delight of the Father in the Son and the delight of the Son in the Father, inflaming their love and so binding them together in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, which we read about in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, which will be the, the final passage of this Advent series. He, he makes the Father's love known to the Son. And it causes the Son to cry, Abba, Father, which is something that He does for us also, according to Romans 8 and Galatians 4, that we've received the spirit of adoption as sons, sons who now cry, Abba, Father. So none of this means that the Spirit is merely an impersonal divine force. Remember, we said that the Holy Spirit is one of the persons of the essence of God. He's one of the, one of the three right? There's one essence, three persons. The Holy Spirit is the third member of the Trinity. And as a person, He speaks and He sins. Acts 13, we see Him speaking and sending. He chooses in Acts 20. He teaches in John 14. He gives in Isaiah 63. He can be lied to and tested in Acts 5. He can be resisted in Acts 7. He can be grieved in Isaiah 63 and Ephesians 4. He can be blasphemed and Matthew 12. In every way, he is presented alongside the Father and the Son as a person in the Godhead. And maybe this is best seen in the Great Commission, which we looked at last week, where Jesus says, go and make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Again, I say that God is eternally triune, and he is therefore eternally loving. And this separates him from all other gods. Now in Genesis 1, 1 through 2, we, we begin to see how the Godhead was working. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. 
So the way that the Father and the Son and the Spirit related at Jesus' at Jesus's baptism wasn't a one-time event. It, it looks a lot like Genesis 1, 1 through 2, where you see them all in action. Reeves explains this further. He says, we see the Spirit hovered, dove-like, over the waters, just as he did at the baptism. The Spirit would go on to send out Christ into the lifeless wilderness. So in Genesis 1, the Spirit appears as the power by which God's Word goes out into the lifeless void. In the beginning, God creates by His Word, the Word that would later become flesh, as seen in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And He does so by sending out His Word and the power of His Spirit or breath. This is how we see that they're linked. So what we're saying is that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit work together in perfect harmony in creating the heavens and the earth. And the crown jewel of creation, which is humanity, images the triune God perfectly. In Genesis 1:27, we read that He created them. In His own image and likeness, He created them. Male and female, He created them. And so God creates man from the dust of the ground, breathes life into his nostrils by his own breath. He's loving and life-giving. And then God creates the woman from the side of man. Now, if you'll remember last week, I talked about how you can't, you really can't draw the Trinity. <laughs> you really can't use an analogy for the Trinity like water or a person and how he has three different roles that those get into heresies like modalism and, and others. But, but Reeves in his book pointed out one that I had never heard before that I think works really well. He says that Eve is a person distinct from Adam, and so he's going back to creation to help explain the Trinity. Eve is a person distinct from Adam, yet she has all her life and being from Adam. In Corinthians we read that... Um, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And so back to Reeves' quote, he says, Eve is a person distinct from Adam, yet she has all her life and being from Adam. She comes from his side. She is bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh, and is one with him in the flesh, according to Genesis chapter 2. Now this reflects a personal God a son who is distinct from his father and yet who is of the very being of the father and who is eternally one with him in spirit. So maybe marriage is the best analogy we have for the Trinity, at least Christian marriage. So then it's out of the overflow of loving fellowship with the son that causes God to create the heavens and the earth. What I'm wanting you to see is that, um, as I said last week, that God has no, there's, there's no lack in God. There's no need in God. There's no want in God. God does not create because He wants something that He's missing. He, he doesn't create so that He might be complete because He lacks. He doesn't create to fill some need that the Godhead wasn't fulfilling. And so he's missing something. 
He creates out of love, which bubbles forth like a fountainhead, filling creation with His glory. Paul writes again in Colossians 1, 15-16, He is the image of the invisible God, talking about Christ, the firstborn of all creation. Now, this does not mean that God created Jesus, which is the, the old thing that caused Santa Claus to punch Arius over, right? God has not created Christ. True story. <laughs> For, but what it means is, is that Christ receives all the blessings of the firstborn, that everything that is the Father's is His. He's the firstborn of all creation. It all belongs to Him. Listen, we know this because Paul goes on to say, for by Him, talking about Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. Everything exists to glorify God, especially God the Son. Creation is God's gift to His Son. The, the Son is the goal of creation. He is the beginning and the end of creation. Creation is the expression of God's love for His Son. It all exists for Him. And so this means that you exist for God. God does not exist for you. God does not tend to all of your wants and all of your needs because He is your Santa Claus. God is the God of heaven and earth. He's the creator of all things. Everything exists to glorify His name. And so you exist to glorify the name of God. And you will glorify the name of God either by your obedience or by your disobedience. Because your disobedience will be judged rightly in the last day, and so God will receive glory for His judgments. Your obedience will be judged rightly, and so God will receive glory because you and I are only obedient because of the righteousness of Christ Jesus. As we possess faith in Him, as we trust Him for our obedience, as we trust Him to absolve our disobediences, God receives the glory in this. We exist for Him. He does not exist for us. Reeves has just kind of a thought experiment he concludes with in chapter 2. He says, so next time you look up at the sun, next time you look up at the sun, the moon, and the stars, and you wonder... Remember, they were there because God loves. Because the Father's love for the Son burst out that it might be enjoyed by many, that you and I might know the love of God. And they remain there only because God does not stop loving. He is an attentive Father who numbers every hair on our heads, for whom the fall of every sparrow matters. There's none there's not a sparrow that falls apart from the Word of God, apart from His providence. And out of love, He upholds all things through His Son and breathes out natural life on all through His Spirit. 
Reeves continues, that not only is God's joyful, abundant, spreading goodness the very reason for creation, the love and the goodness of the triune God is the source of all love and goodness. It's where we come to know what is truly good, what is truly loving is in God. It's not apart from Him. It's in Him. Reeves goes on to quote John Owen, who wrote that the Father's love for the Son is the fountain and the prototype of all love. And all love in the creation was introduced from this fountain to give a shadow and a resemblance of it. Reeves goes on to say, indeed, the triune God is the love behind all love. He's the life behind all life. He's the music behind all music. He's the beauty behind all beauty, and He is the joy behind all joy. It comes from Him and through Him, and it exists to Him. In other words, in the triune God is a God we can heartily enjoy. It's a God we can know. It's a God we can come to uh, fellowship with, commune with. It's a God we can delight in. And we do that through His creation. One of the ways that we enjoy God is by enjoying the things that He has created. It's enjoying the life that you have been given. It's spending your life in worship to God. Or as Romans 12 puts it, to live your life, to, to give your life as a living sacrifice for God. It's to understand that we exist for His glory. And so we must ascribe all glory and praise to Him in the way that we live. So how do we know that God loves us? Well, as John Piper wrote, he said, God loves us mainly by giving us Himself. That's how we know that God loves us, because He gives us Himself. If God were not loving, He would not give us Himself, because He's the all-satisfying. He's all-sufficient. He's self-existent. He's the only thing that is able to satisfy your desires, your wants. It's the only thing that can satisfy your needs. He gives us Himself and all that He is for us in Jesus Christ. Piper goes on to say, Jesus loves us mainly by giving us Himself and all that God is for us in Him. And this is what John 3.16 is showing us, right? As Jesus Christ is in this conversation with Nicodemus about how to be saved, how to be born again, what it takes to be righteous. Jesus says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, and that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And, and what is eternal life? Well, Jesus defines it in John 17.3. He says, This is eternal life. That they know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So eternal life depends on God revealing Himself to us. Eternal life depends on God revealing His Son to us. Praise God 
that he has done both. That he has revealed himself not only naturally in creation, but specially in his word. We can know God. He's revealed the Son physically. The Son walked on earth. The Son lived the life that we can't live. The Son was a, the radiance of the glory of God. He was a perfect imprint of God's nature. He was God, and He was man. And so next week, we'll talk more about what that means. Eternal life, then, is to know the Father through His Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. But we can only know and love the Father. The the way to know the Father is is to come to Him through faith in His Son, who was given as a payment for our sins. It's to place your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins that you come to know the Father, that God has revealed to you. In Ephesians 2, there's this bleak picture painted of mankind that he is dead in his trespasses and sins. And then in verse 4, we read this, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show, He's still showing, these are the coming ages, the age to come even, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then in verse 10, Paul writes, he says, For we are his workmanship. Talking about you as a believer now, you who have been saved by the grace of God, you are now his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Wow. And so what we see is a a very Trinitarian view of salvation that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit pour their love on us in creation and then again in a recreation of those who believe in Christ, a new creation, that you become altogether new, altogether different. And that recreation undoes the brokenness of the fall. It reverses the curse of sin and death that are on your life because of the fall. And you have new life. God has created in you new life. You have been born again by the grace of God. And so we see that the overflowing love of God is the beginning of creation. It's the beginning of it. Both physical creation and spiritual rebirth are founded on the love of God. Amen? It's dependent upon it. If there's anybody in here today who is an unbeliever in Jesus Christ, you're unsure, you're not following Him, or maybe 
You're of a different stripe of unbelief, the kind of unbelief that says, well, I believe that Jesus existed. I believe there is a God, but I don't follow Him. There's no fruit of salvation in my life. And I implore you today on behalf of the loving Father and on behalf of His Son, Jesus Christ, to be reconciled to God through faith in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Trust God for the forgiveness of your sins. Find new life in Him. God is not distant from you. He's not far off from you. He is near to those who are humbled by their sins, near to those who are in need of a Savior. And so all that you need to bring to God today, if you are to, quote-unquote, bring something to Him, is to bring to Him your sin, that you might be saved today. And I know that many of you in here are genuine believers, followers of Christ Jesus. No doubt wrestling with the flesh day in and day out. No doubt struggling with sins, but saved by the grace of God, seeking to honor the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, living your life to glorify Him. I want you today to reflect on the God who saved you from your sins, the God who created all things out of love for His Son, the God who came to us in His Son, the God who died for our sins through His Son. Reflect on the God who redeems us and makes us sons and daughters who cry, Abba, Father. The God who makes us eternal co-heirs with Jesus Christ by His salvation. Come to Him today. Reflect on Him today, brothers and sisters. Remember Him. For your edification, I have Romans 8, 15 through 17. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ Jesus, provided that we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Amen. If you are to run this race well, if you're to finish this race well, it'll be because you fixed your eyes on Christ Jesus and you never looked back. Amen. Would you stand?